Chapter Six, Part One of The History of the Catholic Church from the Renaissance to the French Revolution by Reverend James McCaffrey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Reformation in Scotland. In Scotland, a long succession of infant kings and weak regents helped to increase the power of the lords at the expense of the crown. The king or regent had no standing army at his disposal nor were the resources of the royal treasury sufficient to allow the ruler to invoke the assistance of foreign mercenaries. As a result, the king was dependent more or less on the lords, who were prepared to support him if their own demands were conceded, or to form private confederations or bands against him if they felt that they themselves were aggrieved. Parliament, which included the spiritual and lay lords, together with representatives of the lower nobility and of the cities, did not play a very important part in the government of the country. For years, Scotland had been the close ally of France and the enemy of England. Such an alliance was at once the best pledge for Scotland's independence and the best guarantee against England's successful invasion of France. To put an end to the controversies regarding the primatial rights claimed by the Archbishop of York over the Scottish Church, Clement III issued a bull in 1188 declaring the Church of Scotland subject directly only to the Apostolic See. A further step was taken by Sixtus IV in 1472, when St. Andrews was erected into a metropolitan see, under which were placed as suffragans the twelve dioceses, Glasgow, Dunkeld, Aberdeen, Moray, Brechin, Dunblane, Ross, Caithness, Candida Casa, Argyll, the Isles, and Orkney. This measure was resented by many of the bishops, but more especially by the bishops of Glasgow, who were unwilling to submit to the jurisdiction of St. Andrews, even after it had been declared that the latter, in virtue of its office, enjoyed primatial and legatine powers over Scotland, 1487. In the hope of putting an end to the controversy, Glasgow was erected into a metropolitan see with four suffragan dioceses, Dunkeld, Dunblane, Galloway, and Argyll, 1492. The bishops of Scotland were supposed to be elected by the chapters, but in reality the king or regent enjoyed a decisive voice in the selection of candidates, especially during the greater part of the 15th and 16th centuries. As a result of this enslavement of the church, men were appointed to bishoprics without reference to their fitness for this sacred office, and solely with the intention of providing themselves and their relatives with a decent income. Thus, for example, James, Duke of Ross, brother of James the Fourth, was appointed to the see of St. Andrews at the age of twenty-one, and he was succeeded by Alexander Stuart, the illegitimate son of James the Fourth, when he had reached only his ninth year. What is true of St. Andrews is almost equally true of many of the other dioceses of Scotland, though it would be very wrong to assume that all the bishops of Scotland during the latter half of the fifteenth or the first half of the sixteenth centuries were unworthy men. The religious orders of men were well represented by the Benedictines, Cistercians, Franciscans, Dominicans, Augustinians, etc., while most of the large cities and towns flourishing convents had been founded. The state of discipline in these various institutions varied considerably according to the circumstances. But although serious attempts were made to introduce reforms, especially in the houses of the Cistercians, Franciscans, and Dominicans, it could not be contended for a moment that the Scottish monasteries and convents were free from the gravest abuses. 
possibly the erection of such a multitude of collegiate churches in scotland during the fifteenth century was due to the sad condition of so many of the religious houses but if it was the remedy was almost as bad as the disease in connection with the monasteries the chapters and the collegiate churches schools were carried on with a fair amount of success sufficient at least to prepare students for the higher education given at the universities of st andrews founded by benedict the thirteenth fourteen ten of glasgow founded by nicholas v fourteen fifty one and of aberdeen established through the exertions of the learned and holy bishop elphinstone with the approval of alexander the sixth fourteen ninety five and of james the fourth owing to the close connection with france many of the scottish ecclesiastics pursued their studies at paris the church in scotland was comparatively wealthy at the beginning of the reformation movement though it should be remembered that out of its resources it was obliged to maintain the schools hospitals and institutes of charity still the wealth of the church in scotland instead of being a source of strength was in reality a source of weakness and in the end it proved to be one of the main causes of its overthrow it excited the cupidity of the hungry nobles and made them anxious to share in the plunder of religious houses particularly after the example had been set across the border by henry the eighth's attack on the english monasteries but before any steps were taken to bring about the forcible seizure of the ecclesiastical property the rulers and lords of scotland adopted other means of controlling the wealth of the church and of the monasteries members of the royal family or sons of the nobles were introduced into the bishoprics irrespective of their merits and were induced to enrich their relatives by bestowing on them portions of the diocesan property many others of a similar class were appointed as commendatory abbots of religious houses solely for the purpose of controlling the revenue of these establishments in some cases those so appointed were only children in nearly all cases they were laymen and in no case did they do anything for the maintenance of discipline for the cultivation of a good religious spirit or for the promotion of the wishes of the founders and endowers of the monastic institutions what was true of the monasteries was equally true of the convents in many of which discipline was completely relaxed several attempts were made to bring about a reformation but on account of the exemptions and special privileges claimed by the religious houses such attempts were doomed to failure whether they were made by the bishops or by the regular superiors nothing less than a papal visitation in which the visitors could have relied upon the full power of the church and state would have sufficed to put an end to the evil and unfortunately no such step was taken in time to avert the calamity as elsewhere so too in scotland it was no uncommon thing to find one man holding several benefices to which the care of souls was attached notwithstanding all the canons that had been passed against such a glaring abuse the clergy following the example of so many of their superiors showed themselves entirely unworthy of their position many of them were quite negligent about preaching and instructing their flock completely regardless of clerical celibacy and oftentimes they devoted more attention to their farms and to their cattle than to their religious obligations one has only to refer to the decrees of the diocesan synods held by archbishop foreman of st andrews fifteen fifteen to twenty two to the national synods of fifteen forty nine to fifteen fifty two and to the letter of cardinal sermonetta to the pope in fifteen fifty seven to see how grievous were the abuses flourishing in all departments of the church in scotland 
at the time when the very existence of Catholicism in the kingdom was trembling in the balance. The root of all this evil was the destruction of the independence of the church and its complete subjugation to the crown and to the lords. As a result, when the crisis came and when most of the lords went over to the party of Knox, they found but little resistance from their unworthy relatives, whom they had introduced into positions of trust, not that they might promote religion, but that they might live by it and in the end betray it. It was during the reign of James V, 1513-42, to 42, that the religious revolution began on the continent and in England. Henry the Eighth of England was his uncle, and he left no stone unturned to detach his nephew from his alliance with France and from his submission to Rome. But despite Henry's endeavors, James V refused to join in Henry's attacks on the Pope or to listen to the proposals for a closer union with England. The Scottish Parliament, held in 1525, forbade the introduction of Lutheran books into the kingdom or the preaching of Luther's doctrine, and a papal envoy was dispatched to the Scottish court to exhort the king to stand firm in the defense of the church. The reply of James V was reassuring. Soon, however, the new heresy began to make its appearance in the kingdom. Patrick Hamilton, commendatory abbot of Fern, and closely related to some of the most powerful families in Scotland, had come into contact with Luther and Melanchthon during his wanderings on the continent, and on his return home he set himself to spread their teachings amongst his countrymen. He was arrested, tried for heresy, and handed over to the secular authorities, who inflicted the death penalty, 1528. His execution did not put an end to the movement in Scotland. In 1533, the Benedictine, Henry Forrest, was condemned to death for heresy. In the following year, a priest and a layman met a similar fate, and before the death of James V, several others, including Dominicans and Franciscans, laymen and clerics, were either burned or obliged to seek safety in flight. James V set himself resolutely to the task of suppressing heresy, and was supported by Parliament, which forbade all discussion on Luther's heirs, except in so far as it might be necessary for the refutation, and ordered all who had Lutheran writings in their possession to deliver them to the bishops within a period of fourteen days. Political influences, however, favored the spread of the new doctrine. It had been the dream of Henry the Seventh, as it was also the dream of his son and successor, to strengthen England at the expense of France, by bringing about an alliance, and if possible a union between England and Scotland. It was in furtherance of this design that Henry the Seventh had given his eldest daughter in marriage to James the Fourth, who was slain with most of his nobles in a battle with the English on the fatal field of Flodden, 1513. The schemes for a union with Scotland were continued by Henry the Eighth, particularly after his rupture with Rome had shown him the danger that might be anticipated from the north in case the French or the Emperor should declare war in defence of the Church. A regular contest began at the Scottish court between the friends of Rome and of France and the agents of Henry the Eighth, the latter of whom took care to encourage those who favored religious innovations. The Queen Mother, sister of Henry the Eighth, and many of the nobles favored the plans of Henry, who sought to induce the King of Scotland to join him in the struggle against Rome, and who promised him in return for this service the hand of his daughter, the Princess Mary, and the friendship of the English nation. James V, backed by the bishops and encouraged by messengers from Rome, refused to come south for a conference with Henry VIII, 
or to give any countenance to the schismatical policy of his uncle. As a sign that Scotland was still true to France, he married the daughter of Francis I of France, 1537, and on her death, shortly after her arrival in Scotland, he took as his second wife, 1538, Mary of Guise, daughter of the Duke of Guise, and sister of the Cardinal of Lorraine. He was ably assisted in his struggle against heresy and English interference by David Beaton, Archbishop of St. Andrews, 1539-46, to and a Cardinal of the Roman Church. The latter was at once a churchman and a politician, loyal to Rome and to France, earnest in his defense of Scottish independence, and determined to defeat the English schemes against both the religion and liberty of Scotland. As friendly remonstrances and invitations failed to produce any effect, Henry VIII determined to have recourse to war. He felt that he could rely upon the assistance or the neutrality of many of the Scottish nobles, whom he had won over to his side, and soon events showed that this confidence was not misplaced. The Scottish army was put to a shameful flight at Solway Moss, probably more by treachery than by the cowardice of the Scottish nobles, and James V was so heartbroken by the news of this disaster that he died in a few weeks, December 1542, leaving behind him an infant daughter, to be known later as Mary, Queen of Scots. After the death of James V, the Earl of Arran, who as one of the Hamiltons was next after the king's daughter, the heir presumptive to the throne, and who favoured the new religion and English influence, was appointed regent despite the resistance of Cardinal Beaton and of the clergy. Henry VIII believed that the favourable moment had come for carrying out his plans. He hoped to be able to imprison his old enemy, Cardinal Beaton, to seize the person of the young princess, to arrange for a marriage between her and his own son, Prince Edward, and to make himself a virtual sovereign of Scotland. To their shame, be it said, he induced a number of the Scottish nobles, the Douglases, the Earls of Cassillis, Glencairn, Bothwell, and Angus, together with many others, to agree to his designs, and to promise their assistance. Unmindful of their duty to Scotland, they consented to sell both their country and their religion for English gold. The regent was only too willing to lend his aid, and before the end of January the English agents were able to announce to their sovereign lord that the cardinal was a prisoner. Everything seemed to favour the religious change, and the plans of union with England. Parliament met in March 1543. It decreed liberty to all to read or to have in their possession a copy of the Bible in the English or the Scottish tongue, and appointed commissioners to treat with Henry for the marriage of Mary to his son. The popular opinion in Scotland supported strongly the religious and political policy of Cardinal Beaton. The clergy of the Diocese of St. Andrews refused to continue their ministrations until their archbishop was released. The people supported them in their demands, as did several of the nobles, and in the end, despite the protest of the English party among the lords, the cardinal was set at liberty. The regent, the Earl of Arran, deserted his former friends, became reconciled with the Catholic Church, joined himself to the party of the cardinal and of the queen dowager, and welcomed the arrival of the French forces that had come to defend the kingdom against an English invasion. The Scottish nobles, in the pay of Henry VIII, were convinced, as was Henry VIII himself, that so long as Cardinal Beaton was alive to guide affairs in Scotland, no advance could be made in the work of destroying both the religion and the independence of the kingdom. Several of the Scottish enemies of the cardinal entered into communication with Henry himself or with his agents. 
they offered to murder the cardinal if only henry promised a sufficient reward and henry expressed his approval of the step that was in contemplation meanwhile the cardinal was busy preparing schemes for a genuine reform of the church to be submitted to a national synod called for january fifteen forty six and in making a visitation of his diocese for the purpose of suppressing heresy george wishart formerly a greek master at montrose had returned from the continent and had begun to stir up religious dissensions in several cities of scotland he was the close ally of the scottish lords who were in the pay of henry the eighth and he himself was the trusted messenger employed by crichton lord of brunston to communicate to the english court the protected murder of cardinal beaton and the destruction of certain religious houses in scotland the cardinal who was probably aware of his plots as well as of his preachings secured his arrest and brought him to st andrews where he was tried and executed for heresy 1546 the news of the execution created considerable commotion especially in those centres where wishart had preached and gave new impetus to the movement for the assassination of the cardinal in may fifteen forty six some of the family of leslie who had grievances of their own to revenge with a number of other accomplices secured an entrance to the palace of the archbishop of st andrews put his servants in attendance to flight and murdered him before any help could be summoned the murder of cardinal beaton was an irreparable misfortune for the catholic church in scotland he was at once an able churchman and a patriot determined to maintain the independence of his country against the group of pro-english traitors who were determined to change the religion of scotland at the bidding of scotland's greatest enemy john knox a fanatical priest who had gone over to the new religion welcomed the murder of the cardinal as a veritable triumph for the gospel and as a godly act he hastened to join the murderers who had taken possession of the castle of st andrews and to whom he preached as the first reformed congregation in scotland henry the eighth no less jubilant for the disappearance of his strongest opponent was not slow to assist the murderers but the assassination of the cardinal did not mean the triumph of the english party it served only to embitter the feelings of the vast majority of the people and to force the regent and queen dowager to throw themselves more unreservedly into the arms of france a french fleet arrived at leith and forced the murderers assembled in the castle of st andrews to surrender those of them who were not fortunate enough to make their escape were taken prisoners and condemned to the french galleys an english army led by the duke of somerset marched into scotland to enforce the english demands and especially to secure the person of the infant queen but though it inflicted considerable havoc on scotland particularly on several of the religious houses and though it overthrew the forces of the regent in the battle of pinkey fifteen forty seven it was obliged to recross the border without having secured the submission of the nation in the following year fifteen forty eight a new french force arrived in england to assist the scotch in their struggle against england a scottish parliament renewed the alliance with france approved of the betrothal of the young queen to the dauphin of france and determined to provide for the safety of her person by sending her into france after several fruitless attempts made by the english to secure a foothold in scotland they were obliged to give up the contest in despair and to conclude a nine years peace for so far the alliance between catholicism and independence had won the victory against heresy and english influence fifteen fifty the murder of cardinal beaton helped to force the bishops and clergy to realize the danger of their position 
they urged the regent to take stern measures in the defence of the church and what was of much more importance they attempted to set their own house in order as the best preparation for the conflict john hamilton brother of the regent was appointed archbishop of st andrews in succession to cardinal beaton fifteen forty seven he assembled a national synod at edinburgh fifteen forty nine which was attended by the bishops abbots and representatives of the chapters religious houses and collegiate churches though the presence of men like lord james stuart the illegitimate son of james v as commendatory prior of st andrews was not calculated to inspire confidence in the decrees of the assembly a very wholesome scheme of reform was carried through which had it been enforced might have gone far to save catholicism in scotland severe laws were passed against concubinage of the clergy that neglected their primary duties of preaching and instructing their flocks and against the alienation of ecclesiastical property measures were taken to ensure that priests should explain the principal points of catholic doctrine in the scriptures regularly in their principal churches another synod held in fifteen fifty two continued the work of reform its references to the question of marriage and to the non-attendance of the people at their religious duties seemed to indicate that religion was not then in a flourishing condition the synods ordered the publication of a catechism and enjoined all priests who had care of souls to explain a portion of it every sunday before the principal mass in accordance with this decree an excellent catechism containing a very full exposition of catholic doctrine was published had it come earlier or had the clergy even then been able and willing to explain it to their people knox and his companions might have found themselves confronted with a much more difficult task mary of guise had shown great abilities during the contest with henry the eighth and the protector though the earl of arran was nominally regent it was she who guided his counsels and inspired his policy the french government distrustful of the regent who was also the next claimant for the scottish throne induced him to resign his office for which he received in return the empty title of duke of chatelherault and mary of guise undertook the government of scotland for her infant daughter about the ability of a new regent or her devotion to the catholic church there could be no difference of opinion but unfortunately she was more anxious to strengthen the french hold upon scotland than to take the necessary measures for the peace of the kingdom and the suppression of heresy she filled her fortresses with french subjects showing thereby that in her opinion scotchmen could not be trusted as a result she gave great offence to the native lords aroused scottish patriotism against france as it had been aroused against england by the aggressive policy of henry the eighth and prepared the way for the dissolution of the alliance between patriotism and catholicism an alliance that had hitherto been the main barrier against the success of the reforming english party the scots began to fear that with their young queen united in marriage to the king of france scotland stood in danger of becoming a french province and though the scottish parliament took care to safeguard the independence of the country in the marriage settlement drawn up in fifteen fifty eight the leading men had grave suspicions that the agreement would have little effect besides mary of guise had no longer anything to fear from english protestantism which was rendered powerless after the accession of queen mary england was now united to spain the mortal enemy of france and french political interests would best be served by maintaining an attitude of friendly neutrality towards english protestants who were likely to prove more dangerous to spanish designs than to france 
such a policy of neutrality might result to it was thought in securing the throne of england for the young scottish queen whose claims as the nearest legitimate heir could not be questioned for these reasons the regent was not unwilling to allow protestant refugees to take up their residence in scotland and to permit the followers of the new religion to continue their campaign so long as they did not disturb the public peace in her correspondence with the pope she paid little attention to the religious danger that was threatening the kingdom and seemed to be more anxious to obtain permission to tax the clergy than to secure an energetic reform of the abuses that she painted in such dark colours the scottish lords many of whom were offended by the preponderance of french soldiers and french officials were only too willing to assist the new preachers and what was worse to stir up their clansmen against the old religion by holding up the bishops and clergy as the friends of france and the enemies of scottish independence national patriotism was now utilized to help forward the cause of protestantism by the very men who a few years before had agreed to betray their country for english gold and had striven with all their might to make henry the eighth the protector of scotland some protestant refugees from england were soon at work in different centres of the country and encouraged by the regent's policy of neutrality the man who was destined to be the apostle of the reformation returned to his native land fifteen fifty five john knox who had shown his devotion to the gospel by applauding the murder of cardinal beaton as a godly act and who had founded the first reformed congregation among the murderers gathered in the castle of st andrews having been released from the french galleys became a pensioner of edward the sixth and took up his residence in some of the northern towns of england in a short time he was appointed royal chaplain and might have had the bishopric of rochester had he not expressed the view that such an office was incompatible with devotion to the true evangelical religion on the accession of queen mary he fled from england to geneva from which he returned to scotland in fifteen fifty five his violent and overbearing manner his extravagant denunciations of his opponents his misrepresentations of their actions and policy and his readiness both as a speaker and as a writer qualified him perfectly for the leadership of a revolutionary party were it not that at certain critical moments his anxiety to avoid personal danger was calculated to shake the confidence of his followers he was welcomed by many of the discontented nobles amongst others by lord erskine afterward earl of mar lord lorne and his father the earl of argyle maitland lord of lethington the earl of glencairn and lord james stuart prior of st andrews who as earl of moray was soon to betray his sister mary queen of scots encouraged by the protection of such powerful patrons he preached freely and with great success in several districts of scotland the clansmen were so united to their lords that they were prepared to follow their example even in matters of religion the bishops and the regent to whom these proceedings must have been known were strangely oblivious to their duties and when at last they mustered up sufficient courage to summon knox to appear at edinburgh fifteen fifty six they were so alarmed by the strength of his following that they abandoned the trial knox encouraged by their cowardice preached openly in the capital and even went so far as to address a letter to the regent calling upon her to open her mind for the reception of the truth by this public challenge however he overshot the mark and not being gifted with any particular desire to suffer martyrdom for the faith he left scotland suddenly and retired to the continent fifteen fifty six 
for years he was the leading spirit in many of the fierce and unseemly disputes between the english protestant exiles in geneva and frankfurt although summoned more than once by his followers to return he contented himself with sending them written exhortations to stand firm in the faith or by publishing violent pamphlets such as the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women in which he undertook to prove that the rule of woman is repugnant to nature contrary to god's ordinances and subversive of good order equity and justice though this document was aimed principally against catherine de medici queen mary of england and mary of guise regent of scotland it rankled in the mind of queen elizabeth after her accession and did not serve to raise the apostle of scotland in her estimation the protestant lords undeterred by the absence of knox decided to go forward with their program in december fifteen fifty seven the earl of argyle his son lord lorne glencairn morton erskine of dun and others met at edinburgh and signed a bond or covenant by which they bound themselves solemnly to establish the blessed word of god to encourage preachers to defend the new doctrines even with their lives and to maintain the congregation of christ in opposition to the congregation of satan they pledged themselves to introduce the book of common prayer to insist on the reading of portions of the scriptures in the vulgar tongue on sundays and holy days and to appoint preachers wherever the catholic clergy were unable or unwilling to undertake this work in many districts where the lords of the congregation held sway measures were taken at once to enforce these resolutions confronted with this revolutionary step the regent and the bishops should have had recourse to strong action but the former was so interested in the approaching marriage of her daughter to the dauphin of france fifteen fifty eight that she did not wish to offend the lords while the primate as one of the hamiltons disliked the regent because she had supplanted his brother and contented himself with gentle admonitions the lords confident in their strength met in november fifteen fifty eight and presented a petition to the regent in which they demanded that the members of the congregation should be allowed to meet in the churches and to follow their own ritual in the vulgar tongue that communion should be administered under both kinds that private individuals should be at liberty to explain difficult passages of the sacred scriptures and that the clergy should be reformed the regent after consultation with the primate consented to these requests at least in regard to private religious assemblies but refused to yield to another petition demanding the abolition of all laws against heresy the religious controversies became more and more embittered during the year of fifteen fifty nine the lords of the congregation denounced the abuses of the clergy demanded permission to use the vulgar tongue in all public religious services as well as in the administration of the sacraments and insisted on the admission of the lower nobles and of the people to a voice in the appointment of bishops and of pastors to put an end to the abuses that were proving such a useful weapon in the hands of the adversaries of the church and at the same time to give public and formal expression to the faith of the scottish nation a national synod met at edinburgh april fifteen fifty nine it denounced once again the awful scandal of concubinage among the clergy laid down useful regulations regarding preaching and the appointment of bishops condemned plurality of benefices non-residents and demands on the part of the clergy for excessive fees to raise the standard of education among the clergy it ordained that those presented to benefices should be examined and that each monastery should maintain some of its members at the universities in its profession of faith the synod emphasized the real presence of christ in the eucharist 
transubstantiation the propitiatory character of the sacrifice of the mass the sufficiency of communion in one kind the existence of a real priesthood and purgatory prayers for the dead invocation of the saints fasting and holy days in response to the demands of the congregation the senate pointed out that it had not the power to change the rites and ceremonies that had been handed down for centuries that as the church was the definitely appointed guardian and interpreter of the scriptures private individuals were not permitted to expound them at their will and that in the appointment of bishops and pastors the rules laid down in canon law were quite sufficient to prevent abuses if only they were followed about the same time quentin kennedy benedictine abbot of cross Ragel, conferred an immense service on religion by his written apology for the catholic church starting with the bible in its relation to ecclesiastical authority he undertook to show that from the very nature of the case such a book required the presence of a divinely appointed official interpreter that the reading of the scriptures was not necessary for salvation though in many cases it might be useful and that the authority of the church should not be overthrown even though the existence of scandals among churchmen could not be denied turning to his adversaries he demanded what was the source of all the abuses and scandals which they charged against the church was it not he asked the unwarrantable interference of the nobles in the nominations to ecclesiastical benefices an interference that was responsible for having even children who were too young to hold an apple in their hands appointed to the charge of populous parishes in order that the relatives of these children might grow rich on the revenues and was it not the very men who were guilty of such conduct who were loudest in their denunciation of the church on the nobles he laid the blame for oppressing the church for introducing unworthy ecclesiastics into offices of trust for depriving the poor of instruction and education and for promoting thereby heresy and revolution as the year fifteen fifty nine advanced the state of affairs in scotland became daily more alarming preachers were everywhere at work under the protection of the lords the regent and the french authorities who had shown a fatal apathy in their dealings with the scottish heretics began to wake up to the political danger involved in such a movement a french agent m bethencourt arrived in scotland in april fifteen fifty nine and whether it was due to his advice or not the regent forbade the preachers to continue their disturbances on their refusal to submit she summoned them to appear at stirling for trial tenth may encouraged by the return of knox who had landed at leith early in the same month and by the armed forces placed at their disposal by some of their principal patrons they refused to attend and were outlawed a number of the reforming lords immediately took possession of perth and destroyed several catholic churches in the city when news of this rising reached the regent she assembled her forces and marched against perth but as neither side was anxious for civil war at the time a truce was agreed upon and the forces of the regent were allowed to occupy the town from perth the reforming lords retreated to st andrews where they burned and destroyed the altars pictures statues and even the sacred vessels used for religious worship the abbey church of scone in which a long line of scottish kings had been crowned was destroyed perth and stirling were seized and before the end of june fifteen fifty nine edinburgh was in the hands of the lords of the congregation the regent issued an appeal in the name of the king and queen of scotland calling upon all loyal subjects to defend the government against the revolutionary congregation 
but her unfortunate preference for French soldiers and officials gave the Protestant lords the advantage of enabling them to pose as patriots engaged in the defense of their country against foreigners. They were forced, however, to capitulate and to surrender Edinburgh to the regent. 26th July Early in this same month, 1559, Henry II of France died and was succeeded by Francis II, the husband of Mary, Queen of Scots. Elizabeth and her advisers were alarmed at the prospect that opened before them. Mary, Queen of Scots, as the nearest legitimate heir to the English throne, was a dangerous neighbor, especially at a time when England was thrown into confusion by a new religious revolution, and when English Catholics might rally to her standard with the blessing of the Pope and of the kings of France and Spain. Even though the Queen of Scotland did not resort to extremes, the very existence of a Catholic kingdom in Scotland, united by bonds of friendship and interest to France, constituted a grave danger for England. Whereas, if Scotland could be induced to accept the Protestant religion, and to throw in its lot with its southern neighbor, the enemies of England on the continent might rage in vain. The rebellion of the lords of the congregation was, therefore, very welcome to Elizabeth and to Cecil. It gave them an opportunity of interfering in Scottish affairs, not indeed in the untactful manner in which Henry the Eighth had interfered, but as the apparent defenders of Scottish independence against a French protectorate. On this occasion, Scottish patriotism was to be made subservient to English political aims, and at the same time to Protestant interests. The lords of the congregation, realizing that without assistance they could never hope to overcome the regent, turned to England for support. Their petitions were welcomed by Cecil and the leading counsellors of Elizabeth, but the queen herself distrusted Knox and disliked allying herself with open rebels. To give the movement an appearance of constitutionalism, the young Earl of Arran, who had been brought to France and who had secretly embraced Calvinism, was induced to make his escape into England. As a near claimant to the Scottish throne, he was welcomed at the English court, and was led to believe that if he acted prudently, he might become the husband of Elizabeth and the king of a united England and Scotland. He was dispatched into Scotland, where he succeeded in detaching his father, the Duke of Chateauherault, and several other nobles from the side of the regent. Relying on the protection of England, from which a plentiful supply of money was dispatched to the rebels, and on the new accessions to their ranks, the lords of the congregation announced the suspension of the regent from her office, October 1559, though they hesitated to take the further step of proclaiming the Earl of Arran, or Lord James Stuart, sovereign of Scotland. The regent replied to this act of rebellion by marching on Edinburgh, forcing the rebels to retreat to Stirling, November, while the Earl of Bothwell seized large sums of money that were being forwarded to the rebel camp from England. The English advisers began to realize that money and secret assistance were not enough to secure the triumph of the congregation in Scotland, and that the time had come when more decisive measures must be taken. In December 1559 and January 1560, an armed force was dispatched to the north, and Admiral Winter was commanded to blockade the fourth against a French fleet. A little later, a formal agreement was concluded between the Duke of Norfolk, representing Elizabeth, and Lord James Stuart, the commissioner for the congregation. At first it was proposed to act in common for the maintenance of the Christian religion, but as these words might have given rise to serious complications on the continent, it was decided that an alliance should be concluded for the defense of the ancient rights and liberties of Scotland. An English army of 8,000 men marched into Scotland, and the English fleet blockaded the fortress of Leith, 
which was the key to the capital owing to the huguenot risings in france the assistance that had been promised could not be sent but nevertheless the invaders were thrown back in their first assault in june fifteen sixty however mary of guise worn out by the anxieties and cares of her difficult office passed away and three weeks later the garrison was obliged to surrender english and french plenipotentiaries met to arrange the terms of peace it was agreed that the french soldiers with the exception of about one hundred and twenty men should be drafted from scotland that no foreigners should be promoted to any office in the kingdom that until the arrival of the king and queen the country should be governed by a council of twelve seven of whom were to be selected by mary and francis and five by the parliament that the entire question of religion should be submitted to a scottish parliament convoked to meet on the first august fifteen sixty and that in the meantime a kind of religious truce should be observed by both sides it was agreed furthermore that the spiritual peers should hold their seats in parliament as before and that they should not be disturbed in their ecclesiastical possessions the successful invasion of scotland by the english troops had turned the scales in favour of the lords of the congregation they were now masters in scotland but had the bishops and clergy been zealous men worthy of their sacred office the cause of the old church in scotland would not have been even then hopeless while knox and his friends were straining every nerve to consolidate their work by the appointment of preachers and superintendents for the rising congregation many of the catholic bishops and abbots several of whom were allied by blood and friendship with the lay lords either contented themselves with doing nothing or went over to the enemies of the church for the sake of securing for themselves and their descendants the ecclesiastical property that they administered the archbishop of st andrews and primate of scotland was the brother of the earl of arran though a convinced catholic himself he was not the man either to make a struggle or to inspire confidence at such a crisis archbishop beaton of glasgow had fled already from the kingdom the bishop of argyle another illegitimate scion of the house of hamilton was a protestant or was soon to become one adam bothwell whom the pope had appointed the previous year to the see of orkney on the petition of the king and queen of scotland could not be trusted as his subsequent conduct showed alexander gordon who claimed to be bishop of galloway though he was never consecrated had gone over openly to the enemies of the church as had also the provincial of the dominicans the sub-prior of the chapter of st andrews and john roe a former agent of the scottish bishops at the roman court with men such as these to guard the interests of catholicism in scotland there could be little doubt about the result in august fifteen sixty the parliament met at edinburgh in addition to the lay lords and representatives of the lesser nobles and of the cities there were present a number of bishops and abbots amongst these latter it is interesting and instructive to note the presence of lord james stuart the bastard brother of the queen and one of the leaders of the congregation as prior of st andrews of lord james hamilton son of the earl of arran and a follower of knox as abbot of arbroath of john stuart abbot of coldingham of the son of the duke of argyle as bishop-elect of brechin together with a number of other laymen who though holding high office in the church were determined to promote the new movement for the sake of the property that they hoped to obtain the discussion opened under the presidency of maitland lord of lethington the scottish cecil a double dealer who was even more dangerous than an open enemy a petition was presented immediately on the part of knox and his friends that doctrines such as transubstantiation the sacrificial character of the mass 
purgatory prayers for the dead meritorious works etc which had been forced upon the people by the clergy should be rejected a confession of faith was drafted and submitted to the assembly the primate and the catholic bishops present protested against the discussion of such a document on the ground that according to the terms of the treaty of fifteen sixty the religious question should have been submitted previously to the king and queen and also because the treaty had never been confirmed owing to the fact that the french commissioners had exceeded their instructions it was no doubt for this reason that a large number of the ecclesiastical and lay lords who were strongly catholics had refused to attend the parliament indeed the supporters of the old religion relying on the help of the queen seemed to think that any religious settlement made by parliament was of no importance the refusal to discuss the confession of faith was taken however as a sign of their inability to refute it and the confession was passed with but few dissentients later on twenty fourth august three other acts were formulated with the object of uprooting catholicism in scotland the jurisdiction of the pope was abolished and the bishops were forbidden to act under his instructions all previous acts of parliament contrary to god's word or to the confession of faith as now approved were declared null and void and all persons were forbidden to celebrate or to hear mass under pain of confiscation of their goods for the first offence banishment for the second and death for the third the book of discipline which contained an exposition of the ecclesiastical policy of the scottish reformers was compiled by knox and his companions it dealt with the preaching of the scriptures the two sacraments baptism and the eucharist the suppression of religious houses of all kinds the election and appointment of ministers elders and deacons and with the means to be provided for their support and for the maintenance of education though the separate congregations were left more or less free regarding the kind of religious service that should be followed the book of common prayer formally accepted in scotland was abolished to make way for the calvinistic book of common order in the general assemblies of the reformed church december fifteen sixty to may fifteen sixty one decrees were issued for the destruction of the religious houses and of all signs of idolatry and individuals were appointed to see that these decrees were put into immediate execution End of chapter 6, part 1.